Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Dr. Clay Catherine Berlou is a trauma surgeon in Denver, Colorado. She is world-renowned for her work on pelvic packing, as well as blunt cerebrovascular injuries, among many other things. We caught up with her to find out how she managed to do so much and have such a productive career, and specifically to also talk to us about pelvic packing and blunt cerebrovascular injury. Well, for all of our listeners, it's an absolute pleasure to have Dr. Clay Cothran on the podcast today. Um, Dr. Cothran is uh, a remarkable human being, both in terms of, of work life as well as personal life, and I hope we get to explore some of those things in the next uh, next few minutes. Dr. Cothran, uh, welcome. Thank you for being on the podcast. And for some of the listeners in across Canada in particular who may not know you uh, as well as we do, can you tell us about where you grew up and what your training pathway was? Absolutely. And thank you so much, Chad, for having me. It's, it's really an honor. As, as you know, this is um, one of my first forays into the podcast realm. So, uh, so yes, I, hopefully this will, uh, this will translate well. So um, I uh, grew up in Texas. I grew up in San Antonio. I went to the East Coast for college, returned back to Dallas for medical school, and then did my training and fellowship here in Denver, and then have been on faculty um, here in Denver for almost 20 years. So that's what it is. In a nutshell, is a little bit of my training pathway. Wow, t- time flies, eh? <laughs> it does. It does. Really does. Thankfully, and sometimes not so thankfully. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, a lot of us, not not just me, have admired your career and your your contributions, not only to, to clinical medicine but to to the research side of it as well. I, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what sort of prompted you to be so prolific and and so thoughtful in terms of research on the one side and, and really continuing medical education on the other? You know, I think, uh, uh, you know, when I have been fortunate to give talks and, and particularly to talk to medical students and residents, one of the things I always try to, to emphasize is that you as a single individual can really make a, an impact upon the care of the, for me, the injured patient or for any patient. And I think that the ability in surgical research to pose a question and to um, develop a hypothesis and, you know, rigorously test it and to actually answer that question and to really alter how we manage patients for the better um, is really one of, I think, the most incredible things that we can do as, as surgeons, as educators, and as scientists. And I think that's really what has driven me once, you know, once you, you have the bug and you figure out that you can really answer questions that you don't know how to take care of something, that that just begets, you know, more inquiry. So it, it always seems that you answer one question and then you get three others. 
Yeah, that's that's well stated. It's it's uh, it seems like there's no no end to the voyage anytime soon. There's no doubt. So true. So true. Yeah, you know your your productivity obviously as we sort of dance around it here, but I'll I'll just state it is is really really impressive and and uh, and something we all try and emulate. You are a busy mom. You uh, have a busy family. You have an incredibly busy practice with a lot of demands. And then there's the academic side of it, and of course your administrative side. I'm curious, how do you how do you balance that, and how do you remain so impressively productive just overall? What are some of your tricks? Well, I think you know one of the things that I encourage younger surgeons, both both men and women, and and maybe particularly for women. The first thing that I do is I throw the word balance out the window because I think that that trying to quote unquote attain balance means that you're trying to accomplish something. And the minute you have imbalance means that you failed at something. And so for me, I, I really have tried to have focus. And really, it's a matter of where is my focus at the current moment. And some days I have more focus on my academic and, and clinical life. And other days I have more focus on my family and my home life. Um, I think you know, any busy working mom, um, uh, learns how to delegate. Uh, we learned that you try to outsource everything, um, humanly possible. You know, I, I joke with my husband that we're stimulating the economy because we have a cleaning service, a dog walker, a yard person. We have a spectacular nanny. We have so many people that help us, um, allow us to do our jobs very effectively and then to really focus on our family. And so, I think having that infrastructure of help enables me to be really good at my job and hopefully really good um, as, as a family member, as a wife and as a mom. And so um, I think those, those sort of mental adjustments have been really important to me. And then I think that the other key to success in, in being, um, you know, sort of by the, by the historic measures of productivity um, whether it's book chapters or articles published or presentations given is that you have to be really um, interested in what you're doing. And I have been fortunate to fall into a couple of different areas that really have piqued my interest. I'm fascinated in how we manage patients in those particular areas, whether it's open abdomen management or pelvic fracture management or thoracotomy or BCDI. I sort of have a couple of, of arenas that really have um, have interested me. And, and then, you know, once you have that, that interest, it's really easy to keep um, to keep, you know, foraying, um, and, and trying to figure out new and better ways to take care of, of patients. So hopefully that, that it's a, it's a, you know, a compendium of thoughts, but hopefully that helps, uh, delineate, um, a little bit of the juggle. Yeah. You know, as usual, that, that's, that's so well said. And I, I'm so happy to hear you talk about the term balance in that way, because I, you know, on this podcast and in, in real life around the hospital here with our trainees, I often challenge the the use of that word, both locally as well as in greater society. And I, I think words like the, that you've used, like passion, uh, in particular, are probably more important uh, for a lot of us than than the traditional notion of balance. You know, since you brought it up, um, and, and in particular, I, I think it would be helpful for maybe some of our community general surgical uh, uh, crew across. Uh, you know, a very large geographically dispersed population and country here to maybe delve into a little bit about pelvic fractures and management of that in general. It's, it's of course, fine when, you know, super trauma surgeons like yourself or hopefully maybe at the Foothills Hospital here when we have all the toys and the hybrid ORs and, and all these different things. But how, what would you recommend for the 
the really critically ill patient that maybe can't have an immediate transfer out from a more rural location uh, in terms of, of management of that pelvic fractures? How do you frame that? And, and maybe beyond that, um, you could describe or, or at least frame the concept of preperitoneal packing in particular. Yeah, so obviously I have an interest in pelvic fracture management and, and um, our group have been um, some of the early um, people to push the, the idea of pelvic packing for trauma. And I think for those that are in the rural setting or in, um, uh, you know, in an, in an area in which you may not have angiography, pelvic packing is a perfect way to address pelvic fracture-related hemorrhage. So when I, when I talk about pelvic trauma as a whole, I remind people that the vast majority of patients that have pelvic trauma don't need an intervention. They don't need angiography even, or they don't need pelvic packing. And so it's really a very small proportion, about maybe at most 10% of, of all pelvic fracture patients that need an intervention for bleeding. And so when you really pull down those numbers and then look at those patients we use our intervention point for pelvic fracture-related bleeding. And whether you choose to do pelvic packing, which is what I would um, advocate, others still do angiography, our intervention point is the same for both of those groups. And so for us, if patients remain hemodynamically unstable despite getting two units of blood, those are the patients that have ongoing bleeding that need an intervention. So it's not based upon their CAT scan finding. It's not based upon that blush on your 64-slice CT scanner that probably um, doesn't mean much. It's really based upon the patient physiology. And so even if you are in a, an area where you can't um, you know, take a patient to angiography, you can't take them for pelvic packing. And so using those simple techniques of um, uh, binding, you know, whether you use pelvic sheeting or you use a binder in order to stabilize the bony pelvis, prevent ongoing shifting of the bony elements, you do massive uh, resuscitation with one-to-one uh, -one ratios um, of doing hemostatic resuscitation. And then in those patients that don't stabilize, those are the patients that really go on for pelvic packing. And that can be done anywhere. And we've even, you know, we get a fair number of transfers here. We've talked surgeons through the procedure at outside facilities that, that really, you know, are level three trauma um, centers that don't have the resources of a level one center. So I think pelvic packing is absolutely um something that should be in the armamentarium of, of any surgeon. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, you know, we've seen it used as well in some pretty remote locations by some pretty, um, you know, inexperienced surgeons is, is the wrong term because, of course, they're very experienced, but maybe not super high volume trauma exposures at any point in their training or their, or their practice. I was wondering if you could maybe just very briefly walk us through those steps in terms of preperitoneal packing. And, of course, to the for the listeners, we'll we'll link your your uh, your papers and the, the Denver papers on on this as well. But just to get us started and get us a, give us a sense of of what's involved. Yeah, absolutely. And it um, you know the the uh, several years ago, um, two or three years ago, I was asked it to to give a, a video session actually at East. And so you can actually look. Journal of Trauma has a link to that video session in case you want to see sort of real time what it looks like. I think. The, the, key, the key thing to remember is that pelvic packing is asking you to do exactly what you've been told your whole career not to do, which is to go and touch the pelvic hematoma, right? We're always told, don't unroof a pelvic hematoma, don't jump in there. And now I'm telling you, go jump right in there. I think the important thing to keep in mind as you, as you talk about pelvic packing 
is number one, if you have an orthopod who can put an external fixator on, I think that is a critical component to stabilize the bony pelvis so that you really have um, a stable framework into which you place your packs. Um, if not, then it's perfectly fine to keep your pelvic sheet on. It's going to be down on your greater trochanters and you'll be able to get to the, to the suprapubic space without an issue. Um, but my first vote would be to try to have your orthopods put an external fixator on. Um, barring that, I would still go ahead with pelvic packing. What you simply do, you make about a six to eight centimeter incision. You start at the synthesis um, and, and proceed cephalad. You just sharply go down um, and then use a bovi to go down through the sub and the fascia. As soon as you go through that, um, that posterior fascia, you pop into that pre-peritoneal, but it's also really this paravesical space. So if you think of the bladder as a central midline structure, it's an inverted U around the bladder. And it actually extends from the backside of the synthesis down into um, that sort of paravesical um, space all the way down um, posteriorly. So if you think of it as an inverted U around the bladder, that sort of helps you visualize what that space is going to look like. Moreover, the pelvic hematoma from the pelvic fracture actually dissects that entire space. So once you sort of um, place your hand in there and push down on the bladder, typically that's when the pelvic hematoma will start to egress out of that space. Um, I put my hand around the bladder, pull the bladder to one side. So if I'm packing the right hemipelvis, I put my left hand in, uh, I'm standing on the patient's left side, put my left hand in, pull the bladder over to my side. And then I use a ring forceps for my first lap pad, put it all the way down um, posteriorly. And then you pack in another two pads up around the side of the bladder. And then you repeat the entire thing on the opposite side. So usually you get five to seven laparotomy pads in, um, but usually it's about six pads with three on each side. And then I simply run the fascia closed with a running uh, PDS suture and then put some skin staples in. Um, it really is not challenging. And I think that's been the hardest thing in the last uh, you know, 15 years in talking about this technique. It's not that hard to do. I think it's I think it is scary for individuals because we've been told not to go into that space or to unroot the hematoma. But as long as you keep it in that confined suprapubic incision, you're not egressing that pelvic hematoma into the abdomen. It's when you when you do a trans-abdominal um, exploration of the pelvic hematoma that I think you get into trouble. So if you stay in that preperitoneal space, pack it off, um, then those patients um, will, will stabilize for you. And it's not uh -huh. that hard. Yeah, that's a brilliant description. I totally agree. And your your last point, I think, it just to emphasize it again, is is really salient that this is a different procedure from diving into a large pelvic hematoma that's contained from the top via a laparotomy, and they should be separate and distinct. Absolutely, and and keeping those incisions separate is really critical. If you um, allow those incisions, if you have to do a laparotomy, say you have to pack the liver or you need to do a splenectomy you need to do that through a super umbilical separate incision. And, and your pelvic packing incision is, is way down low right next to your pubic synthesis. Occasionally, you know, a patient comes in, they're hemodynamically unstable. We do a fast exam and it's positive. So we whisk them up to the operating room. We do this phlenectomy, we pack the liver, we take out the bowel, whatever needs to be done. And then you look down and they still have this big pelvic hematoma. If the patient's unstable, then they also need pelvic packing. If they're stable, they may not need an intervention for that pelvic hematoma. But if they're unstable in the OR and you see that pelvic hematoma, the key then is to come back out of the abdomen and do a separate incision um, for pelvic packing. 
I totally agree. One of the other things that I've seen you answer on a, a number of your your talks around the world is is the the efficacy of of packing more specifically with regard to anatomy. And I've seen people ask you the question. They sort of framed it by saying it makes uh, a sort of intuitive sense that you can pack venous hemorrhage through this preperitoneal space, but can you really pack arterial hemorrhage as well? Which of course is the driver for a lot of our persistently hypotensive bad pelvic fractures. What, what are your thoughts on that? You absolutely can. So that's the simple answer. Um, so yes, the whole reason we adopted pelvic packing was because 85% of bleeding is due to venous and bony elements. So we thought, why not go address that preponderance of bleeding sources? But there still is about 10 to 15% of bleeding sources that's arterial. The great thing about pelvic packing is once you pack that pelvis, the I mean, I would say upwards of 95% of patients stabilize. And even if they end up needing to go for angiography and angial embolization, which in our now almost two decades of experience, about 9 to 13% of patients have ongoing bleeding um, once they're in the ICU and they go and they actually have an identified arterial bleed that needs an embolization. Um, the nice thing is by packing the patient, you actually temporize them. You can take them to the ICU, you can resuscitate them, you can correct their coagulopathy, you can address obviously if they have other injuries, if you need to scan them, if you need monitors. Um, you can do lots of other things, but you'll temporize that pelvic fracture bleeding, and it enables you to figure out which are the 10 to 15, 10 to 13 percent of patients that need to take the trip for angiography or need that invasive additional step because the vast majority, 90% of patients don't need to have embolization done. Yeah, absolutely. I want to shift gears here just, just a little bit and ask you about um, potential interactions with Reboa, which of course, um, you know, is, is a, has been a hot topic now for a number of years and probably very overstated in, in general, I think probably more, more sizzle than steak, but um, you know, ha having said that, wh where does Roboa fit into your algorithm for persistently hypotensive pelvic fracture patients, or does it at all? Yeah, so um, I, I agree with you. Roboa has been um, has been quite the topic of conversation for several years now. I I was very skeptical. I have to admit, skeptical of Roboa when it first came out. I'll, I'll just admit my bias. Um, and for me, I really have. Um, I don't use it for everybody, but the, I feel that there are definitely patients that are now walking around out there um, that would not be out walking around without that Reboa in addition to their, to their pelvic packing. So for me, the way that we've incorporated it into our algorithm is we initiated it um, and we actually, we presented our data just at the AAST this past September. We initiated it back in 2015, if I recall correctly, 2016. And we did it in a very um, careful stepwise manner. We incorporated that if a patient had a persistent systolic pressure less than 80, that those patients would be considered by, for Reboa by the individual practitioner. And as we all recognize, there are patients that have a single systolic of 75, and then they bounce back up to 90, then back to 82, and then back up to 100. Those maybe aren't the patients that need Reboa. But the patient for me that needs a Reboa is a patient who has a systolic of 55 and they are not budging from 55, 60, they're peri-arrest. Um, it's amazing if you put that catheter in, the sheath in the catheter in, um, and I will. I only put it in zone three, I feel that's the safest thing for me to do. Um, 
uh, it's amazing that their blood pressure pops back up to 90 to 100. It stabilizes them. It gets them upstairs. We pack them. We get the balloon down and we get the sheet out. So from, for me, literally from start to finish, from the moment they hit the ED and we can go through the entire process, Reboa downstairs, upstairs, pelvic packing, sheet out, and it's about an hour total from start to finish. So, so to sort of sum up, for me, the Reboa, I tend to use it if they have persistent systolic less than 80 and probably less than 70, um, despite getting massive transfusion. Um, and it's really a bridge to get them to the operating room for pelvic yeah, that's that, that's absolutely a, a beautiful way to frame it and, and to use it if you have those skill sets. Uh, there's no doubt. I, I want to switch gears once again here uh, to a sure. final cl clinical topic with you. Yeah, and that's touch on BCVI or blunt cerebrovascular injuries for our listeners that that don't deal with yeah. them on a daily basis. And obviously, very much like pelvic fracture fractures, you and 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 the Denver group. Um, have become extremely well-known and, and sort of industry leaders, so to speak, with this topic. So I'm curious, uh, in particular, you know, if you could define a BCVI for our listeners, um, number one. Number two, tell us about who you're scre screening in, in 2020, uh, in particular, number two. Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, BCVIs have been recognized, uh, well, really probably recognized since uh, the 90s, I would say. Um, and we've become much more adept at identifying them and, and uh, treating them, I think, in the last probably 10 to 15 years. Um, we have a, a standard classification system. Um, grade one and two injuries are dissections with relative narrowing um, of the artery. Grade three is a pseudoaneurysm. Uh, grade four is an occlusion. And, and rarely do you get a transection, which would be a grade five injury. But the vast majority are graded one through four. And the reason that we grade them is not only so that we have an easy taxonomy, a way to talk about it, but that in general, the risk of stroke is related to the grade of injury. And so um, uh, I think as we are determining who should be treated and how quickly, particularly in relation to other injuries, the, the risk of stroke, I think, goes into that conversation so that you can risk benefit the risk of bleeding related to treatment, which is some type of antithrombotic, either antiplatelet or systemic heparin versus um, the risk of, of um, stroke related to how many, in, how many injured vessels you have and what grade of injury those are. Um, as far as how do we figure out the patient has an injury, how, who do we screen? Um, we still obviously have a Denver screening criteria. We've, uh, we've published that. We most recently updated it a couple of years ago. Um, and it's called the expanded Denver criteria. Um, and I think that the key, you know, the, the expanded Denver criteria has a big laundry list of different specific injuries. Um, but I think in addition to that, that you really have to think about the mechanism of injury. And so one of the top line of the, of the expanded criteria says that it's injury mechanism. The reason that we like to use those two things in combination is that you can have a very low injury mechanism, you know, a, a fall from standing. And we've seen this particularly several groups have published in the geriatric population of late that fall from standing is a significant mechanism. But those patients also have one of those identified injury patterns that are associated with BCBI. So, so for us, it's a combination both of the mechanism and of um, the, the specific associated injuries um, that go along with it. 
That's that's beautifully stated as as usual, and I, I think really the 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 expanded Denver criteria that you talk about and that will link to the podcast really have become the, the again the industry standard in throughout the world, and so we we no doubt thank you for that. How does the synchronous or the concurrent, you know, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury impact our ability to treat these patients? And and what are some of the innovative things that you guys are doing, whether it's monitoring or critical care or treatment? Uh, to try and help look after some of these really, really tough scenarios. Yeah, I think uh, you have absolutely um, hit on the crux of one of the hardest um, clinical conundrums. Um, I think many of us who treat BCDI patients, say with a solid organ injury or even with a pelvic fracture, I am much more likely to put a patient who has pelvic packing in place, I've just halted pelvic um, fracture-related bleeding, I'll put them on a heparin drip for you know, if they have a grade three and a grade four BCDI, because I'm so worried about stroke in that patient. Mm-hmm. Same, probably true for solid organs. I'm much more likely to start those patients on a low-dose heparin drip. A TBI is a much more difficult um, question and answer. And I, I don't think any of us really have a great set of guidelines. You know, if you look at the literature to date, most um, institutions don't start some type of treatment until at least 48 hours and sometimes 72 hours after identification of the injury and a stable head CT. So, um, so when you look at the literature in TBI patients with associated BCDI, you really have to look at the timing of initiation of the, of the treatment. You can start treatment, but it, the timing really, I think, is critical and a discussion with your neurosurgery colleagues um, is part of that. For us, um, you know, I think our neurosurgeons get tired of us asking every single day for, um, for permission to start a heparin drip. And so um, one of our goals actually in the, in the coming years to describe our current experience as far as which, which TBIs are more likely to bleed, which ones are higher risk, which ones are we willing to start, um, you know, heparin drips on sooner. And hopefully that'll help delineate some of these, um, these care questions, because I agree that it's, it's just your, the, the misstep is, um, can be tragic if you start that anticoagulation too soon. Well, that, that kind of nuanced contribution to the, the, you know, the injury community would be unbelievable. So I, I hope, uh, I hope that's successful. Um, I guess, thank you very much, uh, um, on behalf of, of all of us for, uh, you know, a 30,000 foot and, and even more granular than that masterclass on, on pelvic fractures and, and blunt cerebrovascular injuries. Can't, can't thank you enough. I wanted to ask two questions in closing and, and bring us back out if that's okay. The, the first is that sure. um, you are relatively active on social media platforms. And I'm, I'm curious how you frame that as, a, as a, an academic surgeon, um, how you use it, how you maybe think it shouldn't be used briefly, and how it's been helpful for you in particular. And the last question that, that I'd love you to comment on, and we ask a lot of our guests, is that if you were to go back to being a trainee or, or maybe starting out your career, what piece of advice uh, would you give yourself at that time? Oh, two, two. Okay, well, I'm going to start with the easy question. Um, yeah. You're kind in saying that I'm, I'm active on Twitter, which, which accounts for... Um, I could be more active. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So I actually, I owe, uh, you know, Lily Lau um, several years ago when I was president of the Southwestern Surgical convinced me that I needed to get onto Twitter because it was a, it was a terrific way to connect with other surgical colleagues. 
And, and it's funny, she actually took the picture that still is on my profile. She took of me in, in the lobby of the, of the hotel at that meeting. Um, and I leave it up because it reminds me of, of the instigating point that I, I, that I actually it. got on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that um, you know, I've tried to follow a little bit in, in Lily's footstep or Ronnie Stewart or you know, my current partner, Jamie Coleman. I think that for me, Twitter is, is I stick only to, um, I mean, occasionally someone posts a funny, you know, COVID-related saving that I have to think is hysterical. But I really stick to scientific um, items in there, whether it's to promote something within a surgical organization that I'm a member of, you know, if the AAST has something happening or Southwestern Surgical. Um, and then I also think that it's a great way to, to have conversations about clinical conundrums. And to me, it's fascinating to see so many different perspectives about the way that we manage the injured patient. And so um, I think being active on Twitter, for me, I am almost more of an active observer because it provides me with such an insight into how people manage patients differently across the country and the world. And I think that has been really um, eye-opening. You know, I think we all recognize that we are a product of where we train and who our partners are and what the latest meeting is that we went to. And so um, I, I think it's a terrific way to get new and different ideas out there. Um, and so it's, and, and it's kind of fun to see different people sparring about how we should be doing things. So, um, so that's, that's my take on um, Twitter. And I have, I have to say that's the only social media of which I, uh, I, I ascribe intermittently to. Um, as far as uh, your, Oh, what would I, what would I tell my, my younger self? Yeah. Um, Oh, that is, that is so uh, interesting. I, maybe interesting is not the right word because, you know, on any given day, I think that I, I am my younger self and not my older self. So um, I think that probably, you know, so many people are, are being asked um, as residents, what, where do you see yourself in 10 or 15 years? I, I would say that um, I didn't have a great plan, which maybe doesn't sound particularly inspiring, but I do think it's important that in some ways not having a master plan helps open up opportunity. And so for me, I think it, it really was allow yourself to see the opportunity, allow yourself to become interested in things that you want to do and pursue those, um, and that you don't always have to adopt um, the 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 things that your mentor wants you to do or the interests that someone else wants. And so I think, you know, rather than projecting where you might be in 10 or 20 or 30 years, I think taking advantage of the daily opportunity and seeing the, the, the possibility in that, um, I think is really important. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.